0: The scripture reading for today's sermon will be Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 38. Hear now the word of God. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, or gold, or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word.
1: Let's pray together as we come here to consider the words of Acts 20 once again this morning. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, we come to Your Holy Word. We recognize that it is Your Word, that it is living and active, that it is breathed out by Your Holy Spirit, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that, Father, as You are perfect, so Your Word is perfect and true. And so, Father, may... Your Holy Spirit be with us and help us to be able to understand the meaning of these words, and may your word convict us. May it give us confidence in your truth, and may it, Father, provide the lamp that we need to walk our steps every day according to your will and your way and for the sake of your glory. So, Father, be with us this morning. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's jump back in together to this important chapter of God's Word today, Acts chapter 20, where we have been unpacking together for the past couple weeks, several weeks, Paul's message. Paul's last words, remember, to a beloved group of brothers in Christ, a beloved group of elders, church leaders from the church in Ephesus where Paul had spent more than three years previous to this ministering the gospel, uh, establishing this church, discipling new believers, raising some of them up as leaders in order to carry on the work of the ministry there in that strategic and important city of Ephesus as Paul left then that place and prepared now to, to be gone from them and not see them anymore. Last time we saw that as Paul was seeking here to impart the most important wisdom and admonition that he could to those men, because he knew he wouldn't see them anymore after this point, that he reached back into the Old Testament Scriptures. And he laid hold of some important imagery from the book of Ezekiel. That's what we saw last time. The imagery from Ezekiel chapter 3, also Ezekiel chapter 33, the imagery of a watchman whose responsibility it was to keep watch over a flock of sheep maybe, or over a city full of people maybe, and warn people of impending danger. And we learned that according to God's standard of justice, even if that danger was coming upon those people as a result of their sin, and so they deserved it, Even if the city that the watchman was watching over was was deserving of the threat that was about to befall them, if the watchman failed to warn them, then the danger would fall on them righteously because of their own sin, because of their own culpability, but also the unfaithful watchman would have their blood on his own hands because he didn't give the warning. He didn't call them to turn from the sin that was bringing the danger upon them. And so he would be held accountable by God. And so Paul had told these elders in Ephesus that he, that Paul was innocent of the blood of all because the very heart of his ministry was always the faithful proclamation of the word of God. The whole council of God's Holy Word, all of it, even the parts that were unpopular, even the parts that people tended to get really upset with him about preaching and teaching. Even, even when they tried to kill him for it, he continued to preach the truth of God's Word unflinchingly, unfailingly, uncompromisingly in all of its entirety. Because, remember verse 24, Paul said, I do not account my own life as being of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. And so that's what we were focused on last week. The very essence of the gospel of the grace of God is this message, is this truth, is this eternally important reality that because of the universal reality of human sinfulness, the everlasting wrath of Almighty God is coming and will be poured out in full measure when Jesus Christ returns... To tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, according to his own words in Revelation chapter 19. Now, I, don't need to, I don't need to elaborate on what that imagery means of somebody treading on a winepress, right? We've all seen that probably, or at least we can imagine a very powerful person standing in a vat full of grapes and stomping on those grapes with all of his might in order to crush them. That's the imagery that Jesus uses. That's the picture that Jesus paints of how He will judge the unrepentant, wicked, unbelievers of this world when He returns. That's just what the Word of God says. We're not making any of that up. Jesus Himself says it. But the Gospel is, the good news is, that until that day, Until he returns to tread that winepress. Until he comes to pour out the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God. He is, every single instant before that, calling all people everywhere to turn from their sinful ways. To turn from their unbelief. To turn from the hardness of their own hearts by which they are storing up for themselves the wrath of God. And to turn to Him in faith as the only one who saves people from that eternal wrath because of His own life, because of His own blood that He poured out on the cross where He subjected Himself to the full brunt of God's holy righteous wrath as as a substitute for any and every sinner who would come to Him. And so Paul's point, of course... in in leveraging the imagery of a watchman from the Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel, the point is that Jesus Christ has called Paul to be a watchman. To sound the warning to sinners everywhere. To say to every single human being that he could possibly say it to that the coming impending eternal wrath of Almighty God will consume you if you don't turn to Jesus. And to point them to Him and to plead with them to turn from their sin and be saved. So it didn't matter to Paul, see, when people didn't like that Gospel message. It didn't matter to Paul when people said, that's a ridiculous message, we don't want to hear that message. Just tell us something that makes us feel good about ourselves. Just tell us something that makes us feel happy. Paul wasn't intimidated By popular opinion. Paul wasn't intimidated when his gospel message infuriated people and and they became enraged enough to kill him for it because their eternal souls mattered more to Paul than his own life mattered. And because he would rather be killed by the hands of sinful men, even like Jesus was, than have their blood on his hands and be guilty of not telling them the truth. because he'd been failing to be a faithful watchman. And so by extension, Paul was impressing that same urgency on the elders of the church of Ephesus, who by extension needed to impress it upon all of the Christians in that church, and by extension, of course, we too need to hear this urgent admonition to be faithful watchmen, to be uncompromising heralds of the gospel message to stand firm on the truth of the whole counsel of God and not allow any false teaching to come in and twist it or distort it or dilute it or pervert it in any way, shape, or form. So that brings us now this week to the remainder of Acts chapter 20 where Paul lays hold of another image, another metaphor from the Old Testament. Look at what he says in verse 29 now. I know, he's he's speaking again to these elders from Ephesus, he says, I know after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things in order to draw away disciples after them. This is the imagery now that that Paul lays hold of in order to continue to admonish and exhort these leaders, these elders, these pastors of the church in Ephesus to remain faithful. It's the image of shepherding, of tending to, of caring for a flock of sheep and protecting them from the threat of wolves. Now the image of Shepherding, of course, is one of God's favorite pictures in all of Scripture to paint in order to illustrate His his relationship to His people, His love for, His commitment to His people. God is not like a a harsh master over poor defenseless slaves. God is not like an uncaring king who doesn't provide for His people, God is like a shepherd who will sacrifice in order to provide for and care for and raise up His sheep. And it's important to see the connection between these two images, the image of the watchman that we looked at last week and the image of the shepherd that Jesus now Or that Paul now presents to the elders this week. These these two things go together. Here's how. Look at verse 28. We saw this last week. Paul uses both images to exhort the Ephesian elders. Right. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock. He's already comparing the church to a flock of sheep. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, watchmen, to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. Notice that verse carefully. Paul is identifying the church as the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made these elders overseers. The word overseer is the Greek word episkopos. The word skapao, in Greek is the word that we get our English word scope from, like a telescope or a microscope. Something that you use in order to examine something carefully, to look at something, to watch something. That's what the, the Greek word skopos means. And the prefix epi is a, is a preposition that means to be over something. So episkopos means to watch over something or someone who watches over something. Something, And that's the word that Paul's using here in Acts chapter 20. He's telling these leaders of the church that their primary function is to act as watchmen, to act as overseers, to watch over the church in order to protect them from harm. Which then Paul goes on to identify the church by way of the image of shepherding. The church of God is the flock of God, the flock of His sheep, and the, the flock is immeasurably precious to him. We, we saw this last week, so much so that he shed his own blood to obtain this flock. And so that's why these elders have to take such great care in overseeing, and watching over the precious blood-bought flock of God's sheep. And it's important to note here, too, before we move along to verse 29, that there in verse 28, Paul speaks very clearly and very unequivocally about the deity of Jesus, doesn't he? Do you see that there? The flock which Paul is exhorting these elders to watch over carefully is the flock of God. The flock that belongs to God. It's God's church, Paul says quite literally in the Greek. And it's the church that God obtained by way of His own bloodshed. And of course, what Paul means there is that Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the eternal triune God, became incarnate in human flesh and shed his own blood as the God-man to pay the price of our sins, to save us, to redeem us, to purchase us as God's own people. And so verse 28 is another crystal clear verse among many in the Bible where Jesus is clearly identified as God, And so having impressed on these elders how absolutely, immeasurably precious the church is as the blood-bought flock of God, and having exhorted these guys, therefore, to take very, very seriously their responsibility to oversee, to watch over the flock of God's precious sheep, now, today, Paul gets very specific as to how. How do you keep watch over the sheep? In these last words that Paul will speak to these elders of of passionate appeal and exhortation to these guys that, that Paul knew he was never ever going to see again, what point of emphasis does he choose to focus on as one of his main primary concerns for how specifically the elders were to keep watch over the flock of God? Verse 29, again, Employing the shepherding metaphor and employing that imagery, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. One of the primary ways that faithful shepherds carefully keep watch over the flock of God is in defending them from fierce wolves. And we know, of course, that Jesus himself spoke this same way, used this same metaphor, this same imagery uh, of the shepherd and the sheep to describe himself and his relationship to his church. He called himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And in calling himself that, he was emphasizing his unconditionally loving and self-sacrificing and gracious nature as the God who he is and the nature of his ministry by saying that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep who redeemed us by the blood of the eternal covenant. And see, the, the, the great significance of this imagery of the shepherd and the sheep and of the identification of Jesus as the great shepherd, all of this, once again, is coming straight out of the Old Testament. Where the one true God uses all of that rich imagery to define His relationship with His people. And one of the most potent places where God speaks that way, paints that kind of a picture of Him being a shepherd over His sheep, is once again in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 34. So before we get to the wolves that the shepherd is supposed to protect the sheep from, I want you to turn with me back to the book of Ezekiel really quick. Keep a thumb in Acts 20 because we won't be in Ezekiel that long. But look back in the book of Ezekiel. Look in verse or chapter 34. You remember... We said this last week, we've said it many times, Ezekiel was prophesying to the exiles. The Jewish people who had been living in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, who had been sinning against God in all kinds of horrific ways, and so judgment came upon them and they were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so many of them were living in Babylon as slaves, as exiles. And Ezekiel was there with them acting as a prophet of the Lord to deliver the word of God to them. And in Ezekiel 34, God is speaking through Ezekiel in a prophecy of condemnation that's aimed at the people who were supposed to be shepherds in Israel. He's talking about the kings of Israel. And many of the prophets and many of the priests who didn't act faithfully, they were supposed to be the ones leading the people in righteousness and in faithful obedience to God, but but so many of them failed miserably to keep careful watch over His sheep. And so God is condemning the unfaithful shepherds, the unfaithful kings and prophets and priests. Here in Ezekiel 34, look at verse 1. Let's just read down to verse 6. The word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. They weren't feeding the sheep. They weren't caring for the sheep. They were only tending to themselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? But you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with their wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak have not been strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the ones who have strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. They've not been kind, they've not been gentle. They've not been faithful. They've not been good shepherds. And so the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search, with no one to seek for them. So instead of keeping God's sheep gathered together, In the fold of His protective care, the sheep have all gone astray from God. The people have all gone away from Him after their own ways, after false gods, after idols. Instead of protecting the sheep of God's people, the unfaithful kings of Israel neglected them, exploited them, focused on themselves, made themselves rich, left the sheep to the slaughter. They didn't feed God's sheep. They didn't nurture God's people with the purity of His Word and His law and His righteousness. And so the sheep all strayed away from God. The shepherds were harsh towards the people and so they became scattered and and, and no one cared. No one sought for them. And so God Himself sets Himself against those unfaithful shepherds. Verse 10. Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. And notice what he says next I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. God himself would become the great shepherd who would search out, who would seek out his sheep. Verse 11. And rescue them, verse 12. And bring them home, verse 13. And feed them himself, verse 14. Look at verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. There's another place also, you don't have to turn there, but God speaks this same message through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was prophesying at the same time as Ezekiel did about the same events that Ezekiel was, but while Ezekiel was in Babylon with the exiles, Jeremiah was back home in Jerusalem with the remnant of the people who were huddled up there and surrounded by the Babylonians who were going to destroy the city and put them all to the sword. And in Jeremiah 23, God said through Jeremiah, again, that since the shepherds of Israel, the kings and the unfaithful priests and the the unfaithful prophets, the ones who said, don't worry, everything's fine. Peace, peace. When there was no peace, they failed to give the warning. God said because they've been unfaithful and so the sheep have been scattered, He Himself would gather them. He Himself would bring them back. He Himself would rescue them. So listen, Jeremiah 23, 5 he gets specific about how he himself is going to shepherd his sheep and and find them and seek them and save them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king, and he shall deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his day Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell secure And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And of course, you know who that's a reference to, right? Jesus is that righteous branch from David. All of that is the great Old Testament backdrop to the coming of Jesus who is the good shepherd. Who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the fulfillment of God's eternal promise to come Himself as the Good Shepherd and seek the lost and bind up the injured and strengthen the weak and feed His own sheep in His own justice. So now turn back to Acts 20. And as you do, remember this. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Jesus is God Himself incarnate. Come to seek the lost sheep and save them and feed them and nurture them and care for them. And remember that in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warned his disciples, as he's sending them out into the world to call people to come to faith in Jesus, he warns his disciples this, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so we know then exactly what Paul means here, right? In Acts 20 and verse 29, where he says to the elders of the church in Ephesus that fierce wolves are going to come in and threaten the flock of God's church. He's talking about false prophets. He's talking about false teachers specifically. There is no greater threat to the flock of God. There is no greater threat to the church of Jesus Christ. There is no greater threat to eternal souls of lost sinners than the threat of false teachers. They are, false teachers are to lost sheep who need to be saved by the true great shepherd. They are as wolves. Who would come and separate the sheep from the shepherd and devour them and destroy them forever with lies, deceptions, false gospels, clever deceptions designed to seduce people away from putting their faith and hope and trust in Jesus as the only one who can save them from the wrath of God that is to come. False gospels. The word gospel means good news, right? There's one true source of good news, which is that even though the wrath of God is coming, Jesus is the one who can save you from it. And there are all kinds of false gospels, false messages promising some kind of good news that's not really true and that would distract you away from the one true gospel. False Gospels are messages that say that to be saved from sin depends on something more than or in addition to the saving work of Jesus on the cross. That's what Paul was talking about, for instance, in the book of Galatians. People who say that your salvation depends on something more than faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. You've got to do something. You've got to earn it you've got to merit it by your own good efforts and good works. The true gospel insists that there are no good works in us that we are able to offer to God. The true gospel insists that we are and can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and that if any of our hope is tied to anything else, anything that we do, then we have no hope because there's nothing that we're capable of doing that can satisfy the wrath of God and that can measure up to the holiness of God. And if anybody tells you that that's not true, that there's something in you that's good enough to offer to God in order to merit His favor upon you, then they have deceived you into thinking less about your sin than is true and real and actual. And once that happens, you'll never understand how utterly gracious and loving Jesus actually is and how absolutely sufficient His work alone is to save you. And if you don't understand that and you don't turn to that and you don't put your faith in that, you will be lost for all eternity. False Gospels are also messages that say that Jesus saves from something other than what He truly saves from. Because people don't want to believe that they're as sinful as they actually are. They don't want to believe that the wrath of God will one day consume them if they don't turn to Jesus alone. They want to believe that their greatest problem is what somebody else did to them and not what they did to offend the holiness of God. And so, false teachers will purvey false gospels to comport with those false notions and say, Jesus really saves you from whatever it is, political oppression, social oppression, earthly poverty, psychological trauma or anguish or sorrow. And of course, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about all of those things. He does, but He did not come here and die on a cross to save you from any of those things. He came to save you from the tyranny of your own sin and to liberate you from sin's bondage and from eternal death and hell. False gospels say You're not so much a sinner who needs to be saved from the coming wrath of Almighty God. They say, more accurately, you're a victim who needs to be liberated from whatever kind of earthly tyranny that you happen to be suffering from under. And our flesh craves that. Our flesh flesh wants to believe that. Yeah, the problems in my life aren't, aren't owing to anything sinful in me. The biggest problems in my life are are somebody else's fault. It's what they're doing to me. And so they end up ignoring the fact that their greatest need is for their own sin that has alienated them from God to be covered by the blood of the Good Shepherd who is also the Lamb of God so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be justified and given peace with God instead of being vulnerable to His wrath. But there are wolves out there, see, who are distracting people actively, deliberately, from the true God and from the true gospel. They're downplaying the severity of human sin. They're they're, they're telling people in churches all across the land that that's not the big problem. That the bigger problem is your loneliness. That the bigger problem is your sorrow and your unhappiness. They're giving approval to the very sinful, abominable things on account of which the wrath of God is coming. They're doing that in, in churches today. They're saying, don't worry about these things that the Bible says God detests. If those things are going on in your life, God loves you just the way that you are. And He wants to accept you in spite of those things without needing to repent of those things, without needing your life to be transformed from those things. And they're catering these wolves to every kind of felt need, telling people whatever they want to hear about happiness and health and prosperity instead of calling them to repent and believe on Jesus and be saved. And any people who follow after them are being led towards destruction, towards everlasting destruction. And that's why Paul uses the word fierce in verse 29. Fierce wolves. Not tame wolves. Some translations use words like savage or grievous. It's the same idea. The original word that he uses comes from a word that means heavy or burdensome or unbearable. And, and what he, what he means is that, is that these wolves who are telling you something other than what the Word of God tells you are, are cruel for telling you that. They may seem to you to be sweet. They may seem to you to be the nicest people that you've ever met. They may be very pleasant for you to listen to, but in what they're telling you, they're being cruel because of what they're not telling you. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the wolves often dress up like sheep. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They disguise themselves, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, as apostles of Jesus Christ. And they do that because they're servants of Satan and Satan, one of his best known strategies is to disguise himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15. False teachers look good. False teachers sound good. They appear to be servants of righteousness, Paul says. They'll act pleasantly. They'll act winsomely. They'll seem like the nicest, kindest, most gracious people you'd ever want to meet. But their cruelty, their savagery, their ferocity doesn't come from their personality. It comes from their subtle, seductive ability to draw people in and persuade them of lies and threaten their eternal souls. And how often is it true, especially in our culture, that the first thing that people tend to be attracted to is a leader's personality, right? If he's easy on the ears, if he's winsome, if he's charismatic... If He makes you feel good about yourself, then you'll come and listen to anything He has to say. And all too often, these big personality teachers and preachers are promoting dangerously unbiblical ideas and people who follow them will not be spared, Paul says right here. Peter gives a ruthlessly vivid description of false teachers in 2nd Peter chapter 2. I tell you this if Peter got up and preached what he preaches in 2nd Peter chapter 2 in any church in America today they they'd run him out on a rail. 2nd Peter 2 There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master Jesus who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow after their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed They they, they do it secretly they're subtle They weave just enough truth into their lies to make the heresies destructively seductive. They appeal to people's senses, Paul says, or Peter says. Again, they, they look good, they sound good, they're smooth operators, they're polished orators. They tickle the ears, like Paul warned Timothy about. And so many people will follow after their their silky smooth sensuality and straight into the jaws of destruction. But listen, listen to how Peter describes them in 2 Peter 2. Verse 10, he says, They go after the flesh. They indulge in the lust of defiling passions. This is one key way That God's Word teaches us how to identify false teachers very often. and, And I'll tell you, we're seeing this, especially in poignant ways today in America. Very often, false teaching is geared to appeal to fleshly lust. It promotes immorality, sexual immorality, so as to entice people who want to indulge in that the whole LGBTQ plus agenda that's on celebration right now because they've declared June to be Pride Month. With all its corrupt, unbiblical, godless definitions of gender and identity and all of the immorality that's being promoted by this worldly agenda, all of it is being wholesale adopted by churches and Christians in America. Some of them right here in Santa Cruz County. And held out to be acceptable. Held out to be normal. Nobody's telling any of these people to repent. God accepts it. Because God accepts you no matter what you are. Don't worry, God just loves you. Peter says that false teachers despise authority. That they are bold and willful in being right in their own eyes. That they're accountable to no one. They refuse to submit to accepted standards of biblical truth. They insist on their own definitions. They insist on their own ways. They won't listen to anybody. And they are unafraid to blaspheme what is holy in God's sight, Peter says. Then he goes on and says, They are like, false teachers are like irrational animals. Imagine saying that today. They're driven by their feelings and their desires. Not by their reason, not by truth, not by what's real in this world. They're creatures of instinct, he says, Second 2 Peter 2.12. That means they're not constrained by what God has revealed in His Word. They do what they want. They do what they feel like. And so they twist and distort the words of Scripture into perverse false teachings which correspond to their own sinful desires. People are doing it all over the place today. He says they speak loud boasts of foolishness and they are enticed by the sensual passions of their flesh. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. In verse 13 of 2 Peter 2, he says that these people are blots and blemishes, stains on God's church. They revel in their deceptions even while they're fellowshipping with the flock of God. They have eyes full of adultery. They are insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They prey on the vulnerable. They they know when people are poorly taught and ignorant of the truth of the Word. And they keep them in that ignorance so that they can entice them with their false teaching. And whatever teaching they offer is worthless. Second Peter two seventeen. Like like waterless springs. Here, come satisfy your soul, but there's there's nothing in there that will quench your soul's thirst. It will only leave you dry and dead. Like mist, vapor driven by a storm. There's no substance to their teaching. They promise everything, but they provide nothing except for destruction because they deny Christ and they distract people away from the only true gospel that saves. Now, again, imagine, imagine Peter in any mega church in America today. They'd riot against him for saying things like that. He's so unkind, he's so intolerant, he's so mean. So Paul is telling the elders of the church in Ephesus that as shepherds they've got to be ready for the reality of wolves like that. They've got to be prepared to recognize them and to defend the flock from the false teachers who will come in and from the lies that they will spread. And and, and then look at what Paul says to them in verse 30. In 29 he said that the wolves would Come in among you. He means from the outside. They'd they'd come into Ephesus and they'd come in teaching things that are contrary to God's word and the gospel and and trying to lead people from the church out and and to follow them. Again, Jesus is warning that wolves dress up like sheep in order to come in and, and get themselves among the sheep. But in verse 30, Paul goes a full step further and he says, From among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They won't just come from the outside. Paul is warning that sometimes they come from the inside. Sometimes they're the pastors themselves, the teachers themselves, the preachers themselves, the elders themselves, leaders of the churches who call themselves Christian churches who are defectors from the truth of Scripture, who have become wolves themselves among the sheep under their own care. Now this isn't novel stuff that Paul's talking about here in the book of Acts to these elders in Ephesus. He's not just being paranoid and he didn't just need to say it to this one group of people. This is a pervasive reality throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church. Jude warns about the same thing. Verses 3 and 4 of of Jude's letter. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You've got to fight for it. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just out there promoting false teaching. They've crept in. They're on the inside now. And before anybody noticed it, they're in pulpits preaching twisted perverse doctrines. Perverting the grace of God. Denying Christ. Promoting all kinds of sensuality. They're not feeding the sheep as Spurgeon said. They're clowns who are entertaining the goats. In verse 10, Jude says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, only understand instinctively. Again, like Peter's words, right? In their ignorance and rejection of pure biblical teaching, they end up blaspheming. And the falsehoods that they teach and that they believe and that they preach are, are driven and defined not by any objective standard of what God reveals, but by their own passions, by their own sinful desires, by their own fleshly instincts. Again, Jude just says it as clearly as Peter did. They're acting like animals and they're teaching people to act like animals. That's what sin does to human beings. Shuts off the rational part of our brains, the image-bearing part of us, and leaves us To do like animals do. What do animals do? They don't think. They don't reason. They don't do anything that they do out of any kind of rational thought. They do what they do because of what they want and what they desire and what they feel only. What their instincts are only. That's what the sinful heart and mind do. They suppress truth. I don't want it. They exchange it for lies. They deny God. They, they pervert and distort reality. They follow after their own passions. They teach twisted things. And when they do that, when they, when they start teaching their twisted, perverse distortions and lies, the wolves will always find an audience of people who want to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Again, as Paul warns Timothy. In verse 30 Paul says that these wolves will draw people after them and that word draw is the word literally drag like like it's the same word that where they dragged they tried to drag Jason remember through the city when they went to arrest Paul at his house So the language doesn't just indicate that people are inclined to follow them. It implies that these sensual, seductive, false teachers are actively, are deliberately, are purposefully dragging people unto themselves. There's another mark by which false teachers can be identified. They're they're much more interested in making you impressed with them than making you impressed with God and Christ. Their motivation has largely to do with their pride. They're creating the following for the sake of their own egos. They're focused and they're focusing others on themselves. They want to be popular instead of focusing people on Jesus. And again, that's another way that God's Word helps us to clearly identify false teachers. They tend to be pretty prideful people. They tend to be pretty narcissistic people. They, they think pretty highly of themselves and they really, really want other people to be really, really impressed with them. More so, truly, than they want people to be impressed with Jesus. And so much more time and much more effort and much more energy goes into their appearance goes into their presentation, goes into their personal allure than it does into their study of Scripture, into their sermon preparation, into finding ways to make the glory of Jesus impress people more, infinitely more than any other glory, especially their own vain glory. Paul could have cared less about impressing people, right? He says to the Corinthians, I was there in fear and trembling. No, no, no. No plausible words of wisdom. No great presentation. No great appeal that would make you like me. Wolves, on the other hand, tend to be arrogant and self-important. Peter said the same thing, didn't he? They're bold. They're willful. They're unsubmissive to any authority. They're right only in their own eyes. They're driven by their own ambition in contrast to the self-abasing, self-sacrificing model that Jesus laid down and that Paul followed after. They tend to try to impress people with themselves more than with Jesus. And then often, those kinds of leaders are also the ones who become autocratic, right? Overly authoritarian, lording over people, demanding people's respect instead of commanding their respect by their own humility and sacrificial love. They're invested in ministry, but for the sake of their own gain. For what they get out of it. Instead of being consumed with the glory of Christ and the needs of the sheep and willing to count the cost and bear up whatever the cross and suffer whatever loss is necessary to fulfill their calling and finish the course and and to make certain that no matter what, even if it kills them, like it would end up killing Paul, that they faithfully testify to the true gospel of the grace of God. So you see the contrast of Paul to the wolves that he's warning about. Paul never shrunk from faithfully proclaiming the truth of the word. All of it. Even if it meant he suffered the loss of all things, which he did. Day and night, he says in verse 31. Unceasingly. Not just a little bit here and a little bit there and then the rest of his life was all for his own pleasure. He unceasingly labored for the gospel even when and where it was massively unpopular and he did it at massive personal cost. He was never motivated by himself in his own gain and popularity or the approval of others or personal success by having a big following. I mean, it's laughable to think that Paul ever might have been motivated by any of those personal concerns, given what we've seen Paul endure and suffer and lose, even this far in Acts. He was never motivated by personal gain. He, he coveted no one's gold or silver, verse 33 says. He wasn't in it for the money. He worked hard, verses 34 and 35 say, and I... And I If we think back over the course of his ministry, we can easily say that that when he says there that he worked hard, that's a pretty massive understatement. Very few have ever worked as hard as Paul, especially for as little as he ever got out of it. The only thing he ever got out of it was suffering in this world. And so he's urging these elders to never be motivated by those kinds of fleshly ambitions themselves. And he's urging them to beware of people who are, because more often than not, those kinds of people are fierce wolves who are, who are looking to worm their way in and sneak their way in among the sheep. And their concern is only for themselves. And that self-interest vastly transcends any interest for the sheep, and so they will end up neglecting the sheep and letting the sheep be led to destruction, if not leading them there themselves. And so the big exhortation for these elders, and again, by extension, for all of us, is those words in verses 31 and 32. Be on alert, verse 31 says. Because the danger comes both from the outside and from the inside. And so the necessity of being on alert is absolutely paramount, isn't it? I mean, I've got cameras and lights mounted all around the outside of my house. I've got deadbolts on all my doors so that I can sleep pretty soundly at night because... If there are threats on the outside, they're being monitored. But have you ever laid there in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning, like I do sometimes, and then you hear an unexplained noise on the inside? (laughs) Now what? Now it's tough to sleep. And I tell myself, there's some good explanation for that. Something fell off a shelf, right? Or one of the kids is up getting a glass of milk, or the heater came on and the air pressure pulled the door closed or something, but i got to get up and go look, right? And go check everything in the whole house to make sure that there's no axe murderers lurking around in there somewhere. <laughs> when the threats come from both the outside and the inside, when that's when the stakes are really high. And the stakes with false teaching are eternally high. And so the shepherds have to be on high alert all the time. They've got to be able to recognize the false teachers and the false teaching. And the only way you do that is is by knowing to the best of your ability the purity of the truth of the word so that you can see the contrast coming a mile away. The threats are real, the threats are constant. False teaching is subtle. False teaching is seductive. False teaching is alluring. False teachers play dirty. They don't follow the rules. There are no rules. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness when in reality they're in service to Satan, and Satan is always on the prowl. He's always scheming. He's always posing as an angel of light. He's always lying. He's always deceiving. He's always pretending that He's offering you something that you need, that you want so that He can gain your confidence and then exploit you into believing His lies so that He can destroy you. You'd better be on the alert. You'd better know the Word of God. Like you're living in the worst imaginable neighborhood with no cameras, with no lights around your house, with no locks on your doors, with no doors. All you got is screen doors you got to be on the alert to the schemes of the devil and the slick, subtle, the seductive lies of the fierce wolves who are preying on the church of Jesus Christ. And the way that you have to be on the alert, the only way that you can be on the alert, is specified right here. Paul's simple, clear, direct, all-important commendation in verse 32 Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Why in the world are so many churches prioritizing so many things more than they prioritize the clear teaching and preaching of God's word? We don't don't have time for anything else. This is what we have to do. Because the currents are strong and the wolves are fierce and the lies are thick and seductive. So Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. What's the difference between commending someone to God and commending them to God's word? Paul commands or commends these elders to both, God and His word. What's the difference? There is no difference even though there is a distinction Because God's Word can never be abstracted from God Himself who reveals His Word from His own unchangeable nature and will. But Paul isn't just being repetitive here there is a distinction he's making, and maybe we could sum it up like this, that as Paul is commending these elders, and and by extension again all of us, to the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed, God-revealed, living, active Word of God in the Bible as the one surefire way that you can be on the alert against the eternally deadly and destructive perils of false teaching. That as he's doing that, by, by knowing and understanding and having our minds shaped by God's Word, our thoughts captive to the Word of God, our lives being transformed by the living, active Word of God so that we could spot the counterfeit, deceptive falsehoods a mile away. As He's commending us to all of that, He's also, and no less importantly, commending the elders and all of us to the living God Himself, because it's not enough just to know stuff. You've got to know God. No less importantly, I commend you to God Himself in prayer. Unceasing constant prayer in communion with the great, eternal, uncreated, almighty, holy God of creation. Drawing near constantly to His throne of grace. Casting every care on Him who has revealed to us so much in His word. How great greatly He has cared for us. Look, you're going to have cares in your life, right? You're going to have anxieties. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have sufferings. You're going to have all kinds of hardship. And if it is not your habit to draw near to God and confidently say, I know you care, so I'm going to cast this on you, then you'll deal with it some other way and Satan will have all kinds of suggestions how. And he will convince you that God is less trustworthy than all of those other things. Confessing every sin to God. Who has revealed how much more eternally his grace in Christ is greater than all our sin? Communing with God and, and pleading his almighty strength because he's the one who parted the waters of the Red Sea, he's the one who made the sun stand still in the sky, he's the one who spoke the whole universe into existence and upholds all things by the word of his power. And yet, Satan would say he, he probably doesn't have time for your problems. Probably what you're going through is way too much for God. And you'd better try to deal with this in your own strength. And your flesh wants to hear that. Your flesh wants to hear anyone suggest to you that you got this on your own. That you can resist temptation on your own. That you can put to death sinful passion and desire in your life on your own. If, we need, if, we, if we're going to be alert to the lies, if we're, if we're going to resist the devil so that he flees from us, if we're going to be able to detect the false teachers and the fierce wolves and not be drawn in and destroyed by them, then we have to. Then we have to be abiding in God's Word and abiding in God's presence all of the time. Listen, Ted and I were talking about this just before the service. Later in your New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is going to write a letter in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus after Paul's met with their elders, after Paul's dead and gone. Years later, and Jesus will say to them, You know, you had all your doctrine, right? You knew the word. You knew the truth. I commend you for that, but you forgot your first love. And and so they became vulnerable to the wolves and to the influences of the world because they were not communing with the God of the word. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God, His word that is living and active and powerful, God Himself who is all-powerful, they're able to, to not only inform you theologically, but to build you up. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you know that that's what you need? Or do you think that you're fine where you're at? To build you up is another one of these awesome biblical words that I love. Oikodemeo literally just means to build a house. Oikos is a a house. The structure, the building that you live in. Oikodemeo to build, to construct a house. The dwelling, the abode. Why do we need houses to live in? Well, because you don't want to just live out there exposed to the elements all the time, Right? and the robbers and the thieves and the wild animals that may be lurking around out there. You, you, you want to have a house with, with walls that are hardened against those things, with doors that can lock and keep those things out. God and His Word are able like nothing else are able. The word able there is the, is the Greek word dunamos. We get dynamite from that word. We get dynamo like a power plant from that word. The Almighty God and His living active word are powerful. Are capable of generating the power and releasing that power in your life which builds up the structure of your life in the only way that leads away from everlasting destruction and towards everlasting inheritance, Paul says. You'll you'll never be built up towards that inheritance in any other way. That way is holiness, that way is sanctification, that way is life transformation, away from the image of our sinful flesh and everything that this godless world celebrates and towards the image of Jesus and his holiness and glory from one level of glory to the next. Today the false teachers are saying you don't even need that transformation. God loves you just the way you are. God doesn't need you to change. we got to stop. Listen, on Thursday evenings, we're going to start to study John Owen's magisterial work called The Glory of Christ. Here's what he says in that work. Just a, a few choice quotes. He says, By beholding the glory of Christ, we shall be made fit and ready for heaven. That's what Paul's saying here. Saturate yourself with the glory of Christ in His Word and in communion with Him, because that will build you up and make you fit for heaven. Owen says, On Christ's glory I would fix my thoughts and desires, and the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither before my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to the things of this world. That's, that's glorious, isn't it? That's what Paul is commending us all to here. To God, to the Word of His grace, to all the glory of Him who has revealed Himself and all the glory of His holy nature and His gracious, loving, redeeming, holy ways because the more you're consumed with Him, with His glory, with the beauty of His holiness, that's when all of the beauties of this world that tempt you, that entice your flesh, that make you vulnerable to Satan's schemes and lies, start to wither. You go, "Why, why, why would I even want that? And when that happens, the more and more captivated you are by the glory of God in Christ, the more crucified you will be to this world and its fallen desires. And all of the ways that Satan and his false teaching servants would entice you through its corrupt desires. Because the glory of Christ shines infinitely brighter. Because he is the pearl of great price. And once you find him, you'll sell everything else. The life that he gives, the eternal inheritance that he guarantees, makes all of the beauties of this world wither by comparison, makes even all of the sufferings of life in this world seem like the momentary light afflictions that they are. I can endure any of this because of what's waiting for me in his glory. The eternal inheritance that He's given us. John Owen, who treasured the glory, said, last quote I promise, Make up your mind that to actively behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. John 17, verse 3. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we would acknowledge today how weak we are in our flesh, how vulnerable we are to the enticements of this world and the schemes of the devil, and how much we need to be built up by You and by Your all-powerful Word to be able to resist the schemes of the devil and the devil himself and to be able to identify all of the false teaching around it and, and stand firmly against it and not be persuaded by it. And we know, God, that the only way is to be consumed with Your glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, make us people who hunger and thirst for Your Word and Your righteousness and who dwell in Your presence daily and communion.